So thank you for being here. We will open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is on the throne, but he has re-established his rightful seat at your right hand after shedding his own blood, purchasing redemption. But you say uh, in places like Acts 20, Ephesians 5, and elsewhere that he has given himself up for the church. He shed his own blood for the flock. So we pray, Lord, that this flock would, even in these moments, in this session today, be reminded of the value of the blood of Jesus and of his great love for his bride, the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do welcome you. We are doing, uh, at 915, Grace Church will always meet. It's the easiest way to say it. In the summers, June and July, summer weeks, and then in December, something other than our normal semester routine will happen. So to put all of that together, January to May, there'll be classes like has been going on for the past several months. In August to November, it'll be the same thing. But June, July, and December will be different, and this is the first of those Sundays, and we're doing a two-week topical series um, on the theme of church discipline, which we announced last week and again through Church Center this week. And we're going to be talking about these four aspects of church discipline, what, why, when, and how. And as we do so, I want to prepare you for next Sunday. So today will be predominantly teaching, almost exclusively teaching. Next Sunday will be predominantly, almost exclusively interacting on what we talk about today. So that's June 5th. Today will be the teaching. And then on June the 12th, we'll do Q&A on this teaching and what's called a primer on church discipline the elders have put together. You will receive that this afternoon along with the link to the audio that you are now hearing. Next Sunday, we'll talk about this session and that primer. Any questions you all may have. So there are five things that I want to try to cover in our limited time together today. And the first is the painful reality of church discipline. The second is the what. What is it? We believe that the Bible teaches there are two types of discipline that the Lord accomplishes through his churches. The why of corrective discipline. That's one of the two types. Number two. Number three is corrective. That's one of the two types. Why did the Lord give us this instruction? When should it take place? And how should it unfold? Well, that's our plan for today. So the first is we want to begin with something that is in uh, kind of Captain Obvious. It's stating the reality. Church discipline is hard. And if it's not hard for you, you have a stony heart. It's hard. Uh, one pastor that I've benefited from immensely from another congregation said, anybody involved in the long process leading to stage four, we'll get there in a minute, of Matthew 18, church discipline, he described it as being put in a wood chipper 
for multiple months. It's very hard, but it's also hard on the whole congregation. So here's the painful reality. Church discipline is always hard. Always. Now before we leave the painful reality, I want to just try to shepherd a little bit with elaboration on that reality. It doesn't matter how heinous a person's sin is, like the severity of the sin, if you will, nor does it matter how notorious the sin is, how very apparent it is to many, many people. If he or she will not repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness and healing and help, then walking through any of the four stages or all of the four stages of Matthew 18, corrective church discipline is hard. It is very, very hard. No one should like it. No church should be on a hair trigger looking for the next opportunity to practice corrective discipline. We should be bent toward grace and belief in the power of the gospel. With that being the case, many churches are at best reluctant to exercise church discipline for what it's worth. I've never been a member of a church prior to Grace Church that I was aware of that did practice corrective discipline. Not only would that go for me, I think this is true, it also goes for all eight elders. None of us have ever been members of churches. So for some reason, maybe churches are at best reluctant or at worst, negligent. I have been aware of churches that have known people to be living in habitual, unrepentant sin, and the church not exercise Matthew 18. So at best, reluctant, at worst, negligent. Think about the man in the Corinthian church, for those of you who know the situation that I'm referring to. The Apostle Paul writes, this man had his father's wife. So he was living in two types of sin, both heinous and notorious. But the congregation failed to to exercise the call from Christ to, quote, Paul, put the man out of her membership. As a result, three things happened. When churches fail to exercise corrective church discipline, at least three things happened. Number one, the Corinthian church contributed to the man's false sense of security, that he was able to live in sin and in fellowship with Christ. That's actually unloving. Number two, the Corinthian church confused the rest of the church members about the nature of saving faith and of Christ's call to personal holiness. Maybe everybody thought all this holiness talk isn't, you know, Jesus wasn't so serious about it. And number three, the church became a reverse witness in the community, in the city of Corinth. Because the man's sin was notorious, it led outsiders to believe that it was possible to live immorally and be a member in good standing of one of Christ's churches. Think about another example in the Old Testament, the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. One man and his sin corrupted the entire congregation. Harboring his sin was an impediment to the Lord's gracious presence, power, and blessing 
and all the people suffered as a result until his sin was dealt with. So in every single case of church discipline and in every single one of the four stages of corrective discipline, walking in obedience to Scripture is hard. In fact, it's heartbreaking when the church has to move beyond even stage one. One of the additional hardships is any time any church I've ever been aware of, not just Grace Church, has walked through the process of seeking to obey Jesus in Matthew 18, additional hardships rise. I'll just touch two of them. People who have not sinned in the situation are often held in great suspicion by those who don't know what Jesus calls the facts. And it brings damage, it brings, it brings, it brings fair and pretty obvious questions to the minds and hearts of the people that don't know the gory details and sometimes causes suspicion to lead to accusation that those people are just unloving or self-righteous or any manner of things. Second, it brings hurt to the whole church. Your sin never only affects you. Never. Think of Achan, think of the man in Corinth, think of Jonah in a boat and everybody's going to sink. Not because of their sin, but because of his. So pain, painful reality, church discipline is always hard. Number two, well, I've said a lot, I've said some about this, but let's be specific. What is discipline? We believe that the Bible teaches there are two types. They are twin expressions of God's loving care, formative discipline and corrective discipline. Now, when you hear the word discipline, you probably and understandably think negatively. The word discipline may make you think of when you were a little tyke and uh, mom or dad had to spank you for your disobedience. Well, <clears throat> uh, Mark Dever writes, without hesitation, we should all admit our need for discipline. Now, we hope and pray that when our parents exercised uh, discipline to us as little people, they did so, as the famous line goes, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> and uh, I've heard many a kid say, well, then let's just trade places. Um, But as we age, we should understand that the Proverbs are divinely wise. To spare the rod is to spoil the child. None of us are perfect. None of us are finished products. We, may, we may need Dever rights to be inspired, nurtured, or healed. We may need to be corrected, challenged, or even broken. Whatever the particular method of cure, let us at least admit that we need discipline. Let's not pretend or presume that we are just as we should be, as if God had finished his work with us. Well, if you can agree to that, you're not a finished product, you need a little bit of help to continue to mature and grow in Christ's likeness, then you're already admitting your need for correction, instruction, teaching, training, even rebuke in righteousness. Not all discipline is therefore negative. In fact, if we want to grow in God's world, 
God's way for God's glory, then we would actually be glad for him to use whatever means he pleases to shape and mold us as the potter, the clay, more into the image of his son. Discipline in that light is quite positive. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 is an expose on the positive aspect of the Lord's loving discipline. The Lord disciplines Hebrews 12 because he loves. It's actually an expression of his care. So that's formative discipline. So good news to everybody in the room who is a regenerate believer. Everyone who's in Christ, I have good news for you. You are currently being a recipient of the Lord's loving discipline. He'll never stop that until you're glorified. That's formative discipline, shaping and molding us by the truth of his word. We receive that from the Lord at all times. Formative discipline, one author writes, refers to those things that shape people as they grow emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. It's the basic shaping that takes place in our families as well as our churches. We are taught by sermons, services, and classes at church. All of this is part of discipline that is positive, shaping, and formative. Now, what is corrective discipline? Corrective discipline, many of you are aware, but to make sure we're on the same page, speaking the same terms, it refers to Jesus' teaching and his command for his congregations to not tolerate unrepentant sinners in her midst. So some have said, what is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? And one basic definition that many have given in church history is Christians are repenting sinners. That's the difference. So to live in unrepentant sin, Jesus gave us instruction as his churches what we're to do. Jesus unabashedly taught. Now try to put these two together because they're in your Bible. Judge not lest you be judged. Jesus taught that, Matthew 7, 1. Same book of the Bible, a few chapters later, he taught us to confront people in their sin. So which is it? In Matthew 7, Jesus was speaking against the hypocrisy and self-righteousness that's resident in the hearts of unregenerate people. They can see the speck in everybody else's eye, they can't see the plank in their own eye. That's the kind of judgment Jesus is rebuking in Matthew 7. But in the same gospel, Matthew 18, Jesus calls the church, not me by myself, not you by yourself. He calls his congregation, his ecclesia, to rebuke fellow believers who are living in sin, including, if necessary, even public rebuke. So Mark Dever writes in one of his books, Whatever Jesus Means, by not judging, in Matthew 7, he certainly does not mean to rule out the kind of judging he mandates in chapter 18. There's a long sad story that's emerging in our day of people deconstructing their faith. The Bible word for that is to apostatize. They were never truly regenerate if they ever deny the faith one such, such person who's become popular in our day wrote what I regard as a very good book on church discipline. 
And, you know, that's conflicting that somebody who denied the faith actually wrote something really positive for believers. But it's not so surprising when we realize the Lord can speak through a donkey. The Lord can speak through all sorts of lost people. Lamentation says he uses basic, this is my paraphrase, he uses all the lost people to take care of all the saved people. That's Lamentations. Um, one such person wrote a book that says Christians should not be willing to join a church that is not willing to kick you out. I think that's true. Because we all need accountability. We all need accountability. The main goal of churches is not numerical growth. To get as big as you can, as fast as you can. Yes, we want to reach a lot of people for Christ, as many as we can in our lifetime. Preached on that last Sunday. Sometimes churches with that goal becoming uppermost. Low walls in, high walls out. It's actually a reverse of the Bible, I think. Sometimes churches with that goal eschew Christ's call to formative discipline and corrective discipline. The Lord's concern is not the church's population as much as it is her purity, her sanctification. So that's corrective discipline. Why should churches do such a thing? Grace Church's elders believe that the biblical aim of the twin expressions, formative corrective, of discipline, are to display God's love and are intended to draw individuals in the church closer to Christ. That's the goal. It's what Jesus is after. And you can see that the reference uh, to the resource is Grace Church, Church Discipline Primer, page one. So this afternoon, at some point, there'll be a church center post that has a six or seven page document that the elders have put together over the last many months called a primer on church discipline or some church discipline primer, something like that. We would like for you all to read it before the Q&A next Sunday. This is a citation from that. Before I leave this slide, why did Jesus give this teaching and responsibility to churches? Why did he give corrective discipline to churches? I mean, he can zap us with a lightning bolt of sanctification anytime he wants to. Why did he give the responsibility to churches? One, to display his love. This is what love actually looks like. You know, it's unloving to let somebody walk on a path of destruction without trying to help them turn around. That's to hate someone. Church discipline is actually a great display of love, including divine love to someone. Number two, nearness to Christ. I think we all could use a constant refresher in the reality of James chapter 4 that God stiff arms the proud. The nearness of Christ. Jesus does not make his abode, his residence, with proud people, self-righteous people. Rather, read the Gospels. He rebukes them. Read Revelation 1 through 3. He corrects, instructs, and rebukes even whole churches who live in pride and lose their first love. So that's one of the ways to think about the why of church discipline. Church discipline, one author wrote, is divine authority delegated to the church by Jesus Christ to maintain order through the correction of persistently sinning church members for the good of those who are caught in the sin and 
for the purity of the church. And ultimately, that's not the end, the glory of God. We have no spiritual light in ourselves. We're like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. We're made in our redemption especially to reflect the glory of our God. Hence, why the Lord's given us the loving expression of church discipline. So that's a little bit of the what, two types. The why, the good of the sinner, the purity of the church, the glory of God. But what about the when? The when. The slide reads, again, from this document you'll receive today, page three. Although many churches fail to practice corrective discipline, faithfulness to the Lord requires that such care be applied to unrepentant members of the congregation. As taught by our Lord in Matthew 18, the fourfold process takes time and leaves ample room between each stage for genuine repentance to be expressed. That is the aim. It's what we want. So let's just read Matthew 18, and I've highlighted the four stages. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, if your brother sins, number one, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Number two, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Number three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And number four, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So according to Matthew 18, there are four stages to the corrective discipline process. Stage one is interpersonal. It is prayer-filled. It is a humble, broken-hearted approach to another brother or sister to try to win and woo them back to Christ, which includes unapologetically showing them their sin. Stage two is a small cluster. Jesus says two or three. We don't have a time for this sermon right now, but he's talking about a Deuteronomic law, an Old Testament pattern of confirming witnesses in a legal, especially spiritual legal dispute so that no one can be falsely accused, railroaded. The facts, Jesus says, must be confirmed and the confirming circle must be plural, two or three. Jesus didn't limit, we don't believe, to only three humans maximum because Jesus believed the book of Proverbs about wisdom and the abundance of counselors. So, at least several, uh, sorry, at least a couple, several or more is permissible. So stage two is a small cluster. If the individual will not listen to the personal, private approach of a brokenhearted brother or sister who loves them enough to show them their fault, then at least one additional person is to be brought to appeal to the sinful person that they may repent. In this stage, every fact, Jesus said, you see it in the passage? Every fact is to be confirmed. So by the end of stage two, in the corrective discipline process, the matters of sin are no longer in question. No more speculation. Stage two is not finished if the facts are uncertain. Rather, the facts are to be substantiated by the cluster of people approaching the sinful person in this second stage. What happens if they won't listen to that small cluster? Jesus commands us to move to stage three. The whole congregation is to be informed. 
Now, this is super important, and we're going to get questions about this next week, and I hope nobody's offended when we say next week, read page so-and-so of the primer. This is a good question. It's a super important question. We're going to talk about it now. It's written in the primer. You can re-listen to this audio. You can read that primer. You can still ask the question, but listen carefully. We do not believe that Jesus meant that all the facts from stage two are to be divulged to the entire ecclesia, the entire church. We do not believe that Jesus meant that. In fact, the word it, do you see it? Stage three, tell it to the church. The word it is not in the original Greek. The original Greek, if you want to be nerded out on for a minute, is ipe te ecclesia. Tell the church. There's no it. Inform the church. We believe that Jesus meant that the sinful behavior is to be expressed to the body in something like this way. The facts of this heartbreakingly sinful situation are no longer in question. The person still will not repent. Although they've been appealed to and been shown the beauty and bounty of Christ, the cross has been held out. Forgiveness for sinners like all of us has been made readily uh, available, has been glowingly acknowledged. But the sinner is still not listening to those appeals to repent, rather is persisting in his or her sin. The hope is, in stage three, again, that the sinner will listen. That's what Jesus says. Listen to the appeal coming now, not from one, not from a small cluster, but the entire church. Again, we don't believe that Jesus commands that every individual in the whole church now has to go talk to the person to see if they'll listen. But it's the collective weight of the awareness that this whole congregation before whom I made a solemn profession of faith that I belong to the same Jesus they belong to. It's that collective weight of, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Lord uses that to bring people to their spiritual senses. But if they won't listen even to that collective weight of the church's awareness of their unrepentant sin, then stage four is the church's only option. Excommunication. Let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You can't see their heart, but treat them as if they're an unbeliever. If the sinner refuses to listen even to the church, they are to be treated as if they are an unrepentant unbeliever. You remember I said a definition of a Christian could be a repenting sinner? So what is an unrepenting sinner? Someone who's presumed not to be a believer. That's stage four. Are they lost? Only the Lord knows. Jesus does not command his churches to vote on somebody's regeneration definitively. You can't see my heart and I can't see yours. But is someone's faith, uh, profession of faith biblical, credible, based on Scripture? Then we should treat them like a believer. And if it's no longer credible, we should not treat them like a believer. So we're not to determine as a congregation with absolute certainty somebody's regeneration. Rather, the church is commanded to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We believe that Jesus means they are to be, number one, removed from the covenant membership of the church. Why? Because the membership of the church in the New Testament is reserved only for those who are regenerate, repenting Christians, whose profession of faith 
the church can in good conscience affirm. And number two, they're to be removed also not only from the membership, but we believe from the Lord's table, excommuned, excommunicated, no longer offering the Lord's table to someone who's not walking in fellowship with the Lord who died as the substance of what the table represents. Well, finally, the how. And then I want to give you a few what to do. Um, apologies to my fellow nursery workers today because I think I'm supposed to be there in one minute, but I'll be there soon. Uh, the how of corrective discipline. How should churches do this? On page three of the primer, you'll read this. As Matthew 18, 15 to 17 presupposes, there is to be an adequate amount of time involved in each stage of the church discipline process. There is no standard time frame, frame given in scripture and thus each situation is to be handled with ample prayer on a case-by-case -case basis. So, you know who church discipline's easy for? People who've never been in the process. It's what my pastor friend said, it feels like a wood chipper. So at Grace Church, it has generally unfolded this way, and you're gonna read about this in this primer as well. Stage one, showing someone their fault and holding out the bounty of Christ. This is generally how church discipline cases have unfolded in this congregation. Someone approaches a church member, sometimes a pastor, not always, with a very challenging situation in their own life or some awareness of an egregious, unrepentant, sinful situation in a fellow member's life, in their relationship, in their marriage, something like that. The member or elder does something immediately. They seek to pray, care, and apply the bounty of Christ from the Scriptures. Walk with the person. Open the Bible. Look together at Christ. Let His holiness shine a light on their sinfulness. At Grace Church, though many of you don't and shouldn't know this ever happens, many weeks, usually months, oftentimes years, of care and counseling take place with the person or persons involved. If and when clear sin is detected and identified, every fact confirmed, even at stage one, the sinning individual is exhorted to repent. And at Grace Church, I can vouch that they are also presented with the great gospel hope of everyone who turns to Christ from sin. Again, that's Jesus' aim, that they will listen, listen, listen. Most of the time, the church does not know about the care in matters that I've just described. I believe every Christian needs, you may call it counseling, I call it discipleship. Every Christian needs that. Most, if not all, church members have been on the receiving end of such care during their time at Grace Church. This is actually a very normal part of Christian growth. Very normal. The Spirit graciously intervenes through the interpersonal gospel care of other elders and members, or members, and the sin issue is overcome as the all-sufficiency of Christ is applied and embraced. That's stage one. Stage two. If there's no movement toward Christ and away from sin, after the bounty of Jesus has been held out, at some point along the journey, additional members are invited into the care process, sometimes elders, sometimes not. 
So other members are invited into the care process. As a result of that unfolding time, labor, effort, prayer, meetings, talks, facts are confirmed. These additional members, in Grace Church's case, are usually selected by the sinful person so as to engender trust in the care rather than suspicion that a militia is being raised up against you. Pick whoever you want. Phrases like this have been said. Name three brothers whose walk with Jesus you aspire to emulate who are members of this church. Then go ask them to be part of your own care process. Something like that, or sisters. That, that's, that's typically how it's happened. So again, that suspicion won't be emphasized that anybody's on a witch hunt to excommunicate anybody. We actually want people to return to Christ. The care team has direct access to that person who's undergoing care from them and others. Practically, this fleshes out in all sorts of ways behind the scenes, again, that the church almost never hears about. In-person meetings, group texts, calls, Marco Polos, emails, all sorts of correspondence unfold among the sinful person, the team, the pastors, with the aim of helping the person forsake sin and embrace Christ. These care teams joyfully devote many hours, often sleepless nights, to regular talks as a group interpersonally with the individual who selected them and has been ensnared in some sin. Um, yeah. In the many cases, the many cases where the simple person has responded to this gospel care in Grace Church's history, no one other than that person, the circle of care that they typically have been the ones to select, and the elders have even been made aware. And I just want to say to you, many times that process, is that process has unfolded in the 16-year history of Grace Church, and it has gone no further in terms of Matthew 18 because the grace of the Lord Jesus has won the day. Unfortunately, the person still will not repent. The church is informed. Again, tell it to the church. We don't think it means tell all the gory details. Jesus did not mean that. We do not believe that. We believe he meant inform the body. Let the church be aware of the situation at hand. So, Lord willing, the Lord has graciously used the biblical process. The sinful person is brought to repentance in the event that in step one and two, that has not yielded what the Bible calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Then the unrepentant sin, having been confirmed by two or three or more among the care team, and the sinner still will not repent, then the elders and the church members, that's all of us, are biblically responsible to Jesus to both be told, so someone should tell us, and to trust that the Lord may use this step for the person to listen. Course, the entire time this process is un unfolding, the care team, the pastors, and others have been exhorting the sinner to repent, presenting them with the hope of the gospel for all who turn from sin to Christ. Now, this is a super important interpretive matter that I've highlighted already. This is in your primer on page four. We do not believe Jesus intended or instructed for a church to know all the facts when they are told. Rather, the congregation is to be informed that there is a facts-confirmed unrepentant sinner in her membership, meaning the facts are no longer disputed, but have been clearly confirmed by two or more, and there has been ample opportunity for the sinner to listen to them. 
We don't believe Jesus wants all the details shared, just like you wouldn't want the last week of all your sin projected on the screen. And we believe Jesus doesn't want all the details shared because His aim is their repentance and restoration, not their shame. He actually took our shame on the cross. And that's what we hold out to people who live in any sin. So restoration to the Lord and to His church is one of Jesus' primary aims in the discipline process. So if the person still will not listen to the collective weight of the church being told, the unrepentant sinner is to be removed. Even then, that's not the end of the process. Those are all four stages in Matthew 18, but if we continue to read the New Testament, we find the restoration of those who have been removed from the church's membership. That has also happened at Grace Church at a members meeting where a person who was formerly excommunicated stood in front of the body and publicly repented of his sin and asked for the church's and individual's forgiveness and was restored to the congregation. So that's our hope. Even after excommunication, we prayerfully hope in the Lord for true repentance and restoration. So that's a quick overview of what you'll be able to read a little bit more about. I have a few recommended resources and then a homework assignment. Uh, Jonathan Lehman's little book in the Church Basic series, I think it's fantastic. On, it's called Church Discipline. Robert Chong has written God Redeeming His Bride. It's a book on church discipline. In the back of it, in the appendix, he gives example letters from churches to sinners, from elders to the congregation, uh, redemption plans, what would it look like for you to be restored? It's, it's just the appendix is tremendous. And then I've cited a few times from Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, which has a whole chapter on church discipline. So what should we do next? One thing we should do is I should stop talking, which I'm going to do in about one minute. Here's what we should do next. This afternoon, for those who are members, you'll find on Church Center a post from Ben Bailey that has audio to what you just heard, as well as a link to that primer on church discipline. We're encouraging you to read it before next Sunday. Re-listen to this if you so desire. And this time next Sunday, 9.15, listen carefully. We will have a Q&A on what you just heard and what is being posted in that primer. That's what we'll use our 40 minutes for next Sunday. Okay? So that's a little bit of the what, why, when, and how in advance of next Sunday's Q&A. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that any real Christian in this room is currently under your loving, redeeming care, including formative discipline. Thank you that you're shaping every one of us. We lament at how slow we grow. We confess that we oftentimes stiff arm your good grace to us that would help us to grow. So thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves, but you've given us a congregation of brothers and sisters who love you and who love us. And part of your love for us does not come directly, but it comes indirectly through your people. Thank you, God, that you've not left us to walk alone. I pray that every person here who does not have meaningful relationships of encouraging and receiving encouragement in Christ from the brothers and sisters in this church, that you would begin that today and that they would take an 
active step to try to encourage others in Christ and receive encouragement from this body in Christ. Help us to be a church that helps each other grow in Jesus, even, and we pray that you would spare us from these moments, even when this church is found to have among her fold those who will not repent. Help us to obey Jesus and to show his love. In his name we pray, amen.